The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. In immersive sound design. This is Big Daddy Kane, and I want to welcome you all to the Did I Ever Tell You the One About podcast? Because season one is all about me. So the year is 1987, and Bismarcky kept his word and allowed the world to be introduced to Big Daddy Kane. Well, let's not quite say the world yet, because my first release in 1987 was a song called Just Rhyming With Biz, which features Biz. DJ Cool V. The creation of Rhyming With Biz actually didn't start out with Biz. <laughs> it was a record called Something Funky and Kane's man, you know, which he introduced him to me. We went to Shimshon's house and heard the beat. Kane said, yeah, yeah, but we got to change it up a little bit. So we was in his bedroom and he had, I think it was a little Synsonic drum where he could sample the kicks and snares. And when we came in there, he had the beat rolling. So we resampled the kick and snare right there. And, um, you know, Shimshon never got his credit for that. You know, that could have been something special for him if the world knew that he did that record. And he did that record right in his house. And then they took all the equipment to Molly's house to drop the track. So with Just Rhyming With Biz, now that the beat is now at Molly's house, Kane does the something funky. Now they go over there one day and freaking Frack is there. So they just go freestyling off the beat. That was actually Kane's beat for something funky. And Biz just said something funky. Now, what people didn't know is the rhyme that Biz says was another rhyme that Kane had for something else. But Biz loved the rhyme so much. <laughs> he just used it. When he heard the beat, he said, Funky! Funky! I'm the rap promoter. I start the motor. Two from New York to South Dakota. Drink ginger ale or root beer soda. Never get the girl with the underarm odor. That was something that Kane was doing for something else. And Biz knew the rhyme. So if you listen to me, he's laughing actually in the rhyme because Kane looking at him because Kane said, yo, I was looking at him like, yo, did I get you that? Kane's friend, Drip. I knew Kane was going to be a star when he made the, um, the first song with Biz, just rhyming with Biz. And I think I heard it on the radio and I was like, whoa, hold on, that's Tony? You know, it really had like local success. It was popular in the New York, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, Philadelphia area. But, you know, it actually was bubbling and a lot of people was loving the song and couldn't wait to see it perform live. Only problem was everyone thought it was Biz's song. So therefore, you know, promoters that's booking shows, they figure they book Biz, they're going to have the new song just rhyming with Biz. With this here new guy that's rhyming with Biz. DJ Cool V. So everybody thought that was actually Biz's record when we was on tour. And it's Kane's record. So when they would hire Biz, they would think Kane was coming. So some nights I had to be Big Daddy Kane. So I would come out and do the part and I would just tear the place down and I'd call Kane and say, yo, I was you tonight. I killed Shit. You know, I used to sign the autographs, Big Daddy Cool V. So now I have a song that's playing on BLS, playing on um, Kiss FM, but I'm sitting at home with my boys. Broke as a joke, man. I mean, not making no money because no one's booking me. And 
And, you know, everybody's assuming I'm going to come with biz. And a few times I did. I would go out on biz show and just perform it, you know. Luckily, um, Fly Ty, the owner of Cold Chillin' Records, was able to arrange a few shows. But, you know, they were real light. Like, I think we may have made, like, something like $750 or $1,000 to perform. But I got a new song out, and I'm not making any money. DJ Mr. C. I was a bike messenger for Airborne Express when Just Rhyming With Biz came out. And I tried to keep my job for as long as I could because we started doing shows on the weekend. We wasn't we wasn't big enough to do shows during the week yet at that time. We was just doing shows on the weekend. I mean, it was to the point where uh, me and my boys had to walk 15 blocks because I'm staying in Canarsie at this time. I moved out of Bed-Stuy. And me and my boys would have to walk 15 blocks to the store. And we go in there and steal Mrs. Paul's fish sticks, canned shrimps, and a six-pack of Heineken, uh, that which was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Like someone put a six-pack of beer on the floor and walk real slow like they got a limp while they're kicking it out the door. <laughs> but this is what we did to like basically survive because I wasn't making any money off of just rhyming with biz, you know, even though it was playing on the radio and a lot of people, you know, like the song. I go back to um, the president of the label, Fly Ty Williams, and I'm like, man, I need to put a new song out. And he's like, there's still life and just rhyme with biz. I go back to maybe like every two weeks, like, Ty, man, I need a new song. Like, that's just me. He like, it's not the time, man. We still working just rhyme with biz, man. Just be patient, be patient. And I'm being patient, but at the same time as being patient, I'm being broke, you know what I'm saying? So eventually... I ended up coming to Ty, and I don't know whether he was just tired of me asking. I was getting on his nerves or whatever the case may be. But um, he said, yeah, go ahead and do something. Go ahead and record something, and we'll see what it is. I went to Marley, and Marley made this beat, you know, something kind of like similar to how he did with um, Make the Music, you know, drum machine beat. He made this beat, and I started writing the rhymes for Roar. And the night before I was supposed to record it, I went over to a friend of mine's house, this young lady I was dating at the time. And um, when I told her I was going to the studio, she was like, why are you always spending time with Marley Marl and Biz? Why don't you spend time with me? I got records. You can find something to sample for my records. So I'm over at her house looking through her records. And sure enough, she had the Black Caesar soundtrack, which is one of my favorite movies as a kid, Black Caesar. So I'm listening through the soundtrack. And honestly, the first thing I thought about sampling was paid the cost to be the boss. Um, as I'm listening, I heard something faster. This mama feel good and those horns that When I heard that, I was like, oh, that would ride to beat the Molly got. That'll ride to beat the Molly got, yeah. So I got that record and took it from her. And, you know, I was gonna go to the studio the next day, but what I did was I tried to follow what Biz did. Because whenever Biz was going to the studio, he had a habit of stopping by Downstairs Records before he'd go. So I said, let me just try that. So I went to Downstairs Records, and my friend that worked there, JC, he um, said, yo, we just got these new James Brown imports in. He played about two James Brown imports, and then he saved the last one for me. Like He was like, uh, I want you to hear this one here. Though. This is what I thought you would like. And it was a Bobby Bird song called Hot Pants, I'm Coming. And when I heard that, poof, I'm coming. I was like, yeah, that's it. That's the one. 
I took it to Marley House and I remember giving the song to Marley and he was Marley was already ready to use the beat that he made. And when I told him change of plans, Marley was like, nah, man, come on. But then when Marley played the record and heard it, he was like, oh yeah, this is fire. So Marley looped it up and I went to the pizza shop. But when I came back, I noticed that Marley had looped up the beginning part. And I was like, nah, nah, um, like six bars in, there's one where the snare's off beat. It's like, poof, catch, do that. He like, man, I done dumped it to tape. I'm like, Marley, please, we need that one. That's the one. So now Marley had to resample the beat in the SP all over again dump it to tape once again, and then we got it there. And, um, you know, once he had it rocking, I'm like, okay, yeah, um, I want to put this in. That's when I gave him the Mama Feel Good, and he sampled it. And when he saw how I wanted to use it in the song, I remember Marley saying, yo, man, you sound like some public enemy shit, man. We ain't trying to sound like them. Them dudes want to sound like Juice Crew. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, Marley, this is going to work. It's riding the song. Like, this noise right here is riding the song. It's going to be bananas, man. Trust me, trust me. And we argued about it for maybe about a good 10 minutes. And then, you know, he gave it a chance. I laid my lyrics down. That's the reason why the song starts off, Here I Am, R-A-W, because I couldn't wait to do something by myself because I was sitting home so long broke, you know, not making money off of just rhyming with biz, you know? But um, yeah, man, we put it together and that's how Raw was built. From there, the rest was history, man. Cliff Love. Mind blowing. It was a diss record for everybody, but he was letting everybody know in a real respectful way because he was a five percent and he was being polite about it. But at the same time, he was very, very aggressive. I said, yo, Kane, I got to get a copy. He made me a copy and I played it for ecstasy on the plane. And X put them headphones on, and Ecstasy played it like maybe 25, 30 times back to back. He was like, yo. He was over the top, excited and ecstatic. Kane's middle school friend, Steve. We, you know, we used to stay up late and just try to take the show. And, you know, it was like a new joint from Kane. And when he came on, it, it was crazy. And then, you know, when he finally, like, pulled up around the way with that white Volvo, because that was like the first thing he got, you know, we knew he was on, you know what I'm saying? He pulled up because, you know, nobody had sports cars and luxury cars at 17, 18 years old. Drip. And from there, I knew it was on. I knew it was over. If you saw Kane after that, you saw him at a traffic light because he was white Volvo and he just kept it moving. Mr. C, when Raw came out, that took it to a whole nother level because then the booking started becoming way more busy. And I never forget, I went to my job at Airborne Express and I was like, I need a leave of absence. I still was trying to keep my job when Raw was out. This is the second single. And I was like, you know, I need a leave of absence. We got these shows coming up. It's going to be cutting into some days. And I never forget my supervisor was like, you, yo, you got to pick what you want to do. There ain't going to be no leave of absence. Either you want to do this or you want to do what you're doing now. And I'm like, well, this is my last day. I'm gone. And the crazy thing is when I left Airborne Express, even though we had successful role, I was still kind of scared because it's like you still kind of feel a little bit nervous. But eventually the nerves went away because we just started getting booked out. I remember when it came out, we were doing shows on the regular. like. Everywhere, Latin Quarters, uh, I don't know, Union Square, Rooftop, Zodiac, Sensations. We was everywhere, you know, um, and it was rocking. But I remember one particular show that I did. I can't remember the exact name of the club, but um, when we did the show, Dougie Fresh showed up. And 
when he showed up, I was like, yo, man, thanks for coming out, man. You gonna watch the show? I'm like, you know, come on up on stage. He was like, nah, nah, I'm gonna watch it in the crowd. And he went and watched it in the crowd. And we rocked. After the show, I was like, you know, everybody was like, yo, you bodied it, yo, it was crazy, it was crazy. And I asked Doug, what did he think? And he was like, yo, it was cool, man, but why you didn't keep on doing such and such? Um, he was like, yeah, why you cut such and such off so soon? Why you, you know, and I, at first I'm thinking he hating. And then he says, yo, uh, won't you come to my house? So like around three in the morning, I rolled with Doug to his crib up in Harlem and, you know, we go inside and he pull out these um, VHS tapes. One was of Michael Jackson, one was of Earth, Wind & Fire, and the other one was Pink Floyd. And he's showing me these videos telling me that um, this is where he gets his inspiration from for stage performances. And he's explaining that, you know, most rap artists of today, what they learned are from, you know, um, the Run DMC, Houdini, Flash and the Furious Five era. But he's thinking out the box, incorporating stuff from R&B legends, pop legends, and introducing that to hip hop. And I'm like, wow, you know, and I, I got it. I understood completely. So that next morning, I went and bought some VHS um, tapes from legends that I admire. I remember it was James Brown, Marvin Gaye, and Barry White. And I took them home and, you know, started studying them, and, you know, like movements that Marvin Gaye did, uh, movements that, you know, James Brown, Barry White did, things that they would say, the way they would, you know, deal with the crowd, and started really studying that and trying to incorporate it into hip hop and, you know, present it, you know, in a hip hop fashion. And one thing I remember on the tape was uh, when James Brown did a split and Bobby Bird pulled him up by his heel. I was like, okay, yeah, that's it. Because I had two dancers, uh, Scoop and Scrap. Back in the days, you know, they were IOU dancers when we used to hang at Latin Quarters. Because back then it would be like me, Biz, KRS-One, MC Search, Africa from the Jungle Brothers, Paradise from X-Clan, and some other dude named Romeo. And to this day, I don't really know what the hell he did. I don't know whether he was a rapper or a dancer, but Romeo was just as popular as everyone else. But yeah, this was like, we would hang in Latin Quarters and they had a dance group called the IOU Dancers. And um, Scoob was one of the members. And when I used to come there with Biz, I told him, you know, one time, like, yo, whenever I make a record, I want you to get down with me. I um, put him and another brother um, named Lays down, and eventually Lays bounced, and Scoob put Scrap in. And we ended up being the unit, you know, that final unit. Me, Mr. C, Scoob, and Scrap. But when I saw that James Brown video and Bobby Bird pulled him up by his hair, I was like, yeah, school, we need a routine where we do that. But just pull me up by the jacket, don't fuck with my hair, you know? That's how we started really getting it together. And it was amazing because like that was something that was important to me, incorporating the dance routines into what we were doing on stage. Because at that time, your main rappers at that time was myself, KRS, Rakim, Chuck D from Public Enemy, Cool G Rap, and of course, Slick Rick. But the main three that everyone looked at, I think were the ones they considered the changing of God. Because you had Melly Mel, the conscious lyricist who passed the torch to KRS-One. You had Kumo D, the scientific rapper who passed the torch to Rakim. And Grandmaster Kaz, the slick talking fast rapper who passed the torch to me. So we were like the main three that I think everyone looked at at that time in the late 80s. And observing that on my own, I said, okay, both of them are great lyricists, but what separates me? 
I felt like Rakim as a great lyricist, you know, his thing was really like just really standing on stage or, you know, just maybe just walking, you know, from side to side. So I felt like I have to be the best performer I can be to rise above. So I tried to make sure that my stage show was super tight with Scoob and Scrap and Mr. C doing tricks and stuff like that. I tried to make sure that the stage show was super tight and entertaining. I learned so many things from Bismarcky and Dougie Fresh, you know, with KRS-One. He had an amazing, amazing stage show. So I felt like, okay, well then, what I'll do is I'll make myself more appealing. You know, I felt like I was better looking, so I, I would make myself more appealing and dress real fly, you know, to rise above, you know? And I mean, you know, I love both of these brothers dearly, you know, um, Ra and Chris, you know, but I mean, just on a competitive level as an MC, because, you know, that's something that real MCs do, you know? It's nothing about disrespect. It's love for the culture. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to win, you know? You heard it best from Rev Run. We had a whole lot of superstars on this stage here tonight. See, to me, that was such a unique time period and such a great moment in hip-hop because I think that there was so much diversity in the game at that time period. I mean, we're like the artists. You could just, there was like so many different artists. No one really sound alike. You know, it's the type of thing where you hear like, bass, how low can you go? You know that's Chuck D, you know? Um, you hear, hallelujah, kids hear this. You know that's Slick Rick, you know? You hear, Dennis the Menace, when I go to Venice, get a lot of love, but not from Dennis. You know that's Chub Rock, you know? I mean, everybody sounded different, and everybody had their own style. And at that point in time, you know, you had um, Def Jam. They were doing their things. They had a lot of great artists. Uptown Records, you know, um, they had some great artists as well. But um, I felt like with the Juice Crew, we brought something that no one really saw because it was a unit. You know, it was actually really a crew consisting of starting with the queen, Roxanne Shantae. I'm Shantae and the rhymes of death. Who was battle rapper with that super sassy mouth, you know, that had a lot of men scared of her because they never knew what she was going to say. And then you had MC Shan, who was like that wild child. That loose cannon, you know, you know, I mean, you just buck wild with it, you know. How could I feel all boy? I helped pioneer this. And then came Craig G, who was like the young boy with lyrics, you know, it was like, yo, yo, this kid can rhyme, you know. Craig G and Marley Wall, we formed the ultimate alliance. No sucker can deal when I'm drawing signs. And then came Biz Marquis, you know, who had the great voice. He could do the human beatbox and he was very comedic, you know. So, I mean, it's like he was bringing all those elements, you know, into his music, making you laugh, making you have a good time, party and everything. And then comes G-Rap great battle rapper, great lyricist, and one of the pioneers of gangster rap. After G-Rap came me, you know, another great battle rapper, great lyricist, but instead of gangster rap, I did mine more like the smooth playboy type of style. Across the crowd, the listeners, the spectators, so let's groove with the smooth operator. And then after that, Master Ace, who I consider the Scotty Pippen, that all-around player, because, you know, he can give you that New York flavor, that West Coast flavor, that boom-bap flavor, or that conscious flavor. He was just uh, all-around great performer. So they packed 
the show just to see he who claims to be the music man. And then there was others, you know, also, um, I Can't Forget Tragedy, Glamorous, Debbie D. There may be a few others that I'm forgetting, forgive me, but we all had a lot of amazing Juice Crew moments. The Did I Ever Tell You the One About podcast, Did I Ever Tell You the One About Big Daddy Kane, is a timeless podcast production, executive produced by Chantel Barron and MC Search, before MC Multimedia and the Timeless Podcast Company, co-executive produced by Eric DJ Eclipse Win for Pay to Win Management, co-produced by Antonio Hardy and Saquon Johnson. Story contributors were AB Money, Chris Rock, Cliff Love, Disco Richie, courtesy of Divine Sounds, DJ Mr. C, Drip, Grandmaster Kaz, Lionel the Vent Kid Martin, Little Daddy Shane, Master Ace, Ralph McDaniels, Steve Brown, Vaughn Lee, professionally known as Cudmaster Cool V, appears courtesy of BP Entertainment, Hip Hop Hands Foundation, and DJCoolV.com. Lead sound designer, Brett Epic Mazer, Associate Sound Design, Patrick Garcia. Timeless podcast immersive sound design voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka and additional voiceover by special guest Kim Osario. 